Welcome to A Page in History. Join us on a fascinating journey as we delve into the memories of the world-famous NBC Pages. Get ready to hear first-hand accounts of their unforgettable experiences as they navigated the hallways of Burbank, California and the iconic 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Prepare to hear fascinating stories that were never meant to reach the ears of the general public. And now, your host for A Page in History, David Harris Katz. Strap in and prepare for an electrifying ride of a show that will leave you exhilarated, astonished, and utterly amazed. Our next guest was an NBC page in Burbank, California in the mid-70s, and she's the author of a new book entitled My Peacock Tale, Secrets of an NBC Page. You'll hear a treasure trove of untold stories that will have you on the edge of your seat including tales about Richard Pryor, Sid Caesar, John Travolta, Chuck Barris, Joan Rivers, Freddie Prince, Alfred Hitchcock, Andy Kaufman, The Bee Gees, Eric Estrada, and many, many more. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the one and only Shelley Herman. Woohoo! Shelley! Yay, Shelley! Are you my thunderous applause? Yes, I'm the thunder. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's really funny, actually, it, 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 you know, I do remember when when we went in and to see the applause signs in the studio. And again, if if nobody's ever been in an actual television studio, you know, there's literally they they before the show they will rehearse, um, uh, you know, like the audience clapping away, and then of course the sign comes on, you know, and it's uh, uh not that not not that spontaneous <laughs> with the big sign on on. So tell no, me, I, so I. I and at Go the on. beginning of the Larry Sanders show, they even made fun of that while the uh, the man who was like the Ed McMahon to Larry Sanders would say, uh, it's it. look at the sign, applesauce. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the running joke about applesauce rather than applause. Wow. Yeah. It's, oh, it's so amazing. And I see, so you have been, uh, I've been following you on social media and it, it's like a whirlwind tour that you're doing for your new book. My Peacock Tale, Tales of an NBC Page. Uh, you have so many things in the book. I don't even know where to start. So why don't and you know? Um, so why don't we just pick pick somewhere to tell me about what's going on, and and we'll we'll take it from there. So how how's everything going with the book? Everything's going really well. I've I've been so excited and and overwhelmed by how many people have responded to this book. Not just people who were pages. But um, because of the pandemic, a lot of us lost touch with each other. And once we got on Zoom and FaceTime and things like that, it really brought us all together. Now, I, I started at NBC Burbank in 1976. Uh -huh. So some of my friends and I have stayed together for that entire time. But to be able to have, you know, about another dozen or so who helped tell their stories uh, in the book. That's that's really been the blessing from all of this. And uh, I, I would say where to start. I, it, it's continually going. All my life's a circle. As I, as, I, as I write these stories, as I do these interviews, more stories come out, more friends come out. Um, I've got friends back in North Carolina, Aiken, Aiken, South Carolina now, Linda Levinson, Neil Weiner here on the, on the West Coast, uh, people in Florida. It's just been, it's been wonderful. And we all have that one thing in common, which is how 
to try to get out of giving a tour. So, <laughs> and I will say this, and I mentioned this before it, it, I always tell, tell folks, you know, the relationships you make now, let's say in your twenties, if you're 20 years old or so, um, I, you know, those friendships that I had when I was a page lasted, you know, 30 years and the experiences that we had are like none other. You know, so it's it must be, you know, reliving that through the book and then talking to these folks. It probably feels like it was yesterday. Right. And, you know, it, it does in so many ways. And, you know, you were rattling off so many names of people at the beginning of, of the uh, podcast today. But to be able to work at NBC Burbank in what I consider to be its last bit of glory days. I mean, we had Johnny Carson taping right. there. Uh, we had a lot of game shows coming in and out, Hollywood Squares, big variety shows that were still being done. I mean, Brandon Tartikoff called his book The Last Great Ride. And I, I kind of feel like my friends and, and I have that. Right. And that's a time that will never happen again. It can never be duplicated. So I think that's why we cherish it so much. Right, right. Well, I guess we'll go through the list. Like I said, the list was enormous and you had... There were some crazy stories that that I read about. But let's we'll, we'll crazier just, than what you guys did on the East it was, Coast. It was yeah. Well, it's funny because if the walls could talk in the Page Lounge, you know, I've told you know, I mean, we slept there for days, and it was it was like uh, it was like the Bachelor on the Bachelorette, you know, and it was insane. But uh, I guess we'll start with Richard Pryor. What what's going on with him? Let's, we'll well, I, I'm that. sure you can empathize with this um, when. Tickets are given out to come to a TV show taping. And those tickets are free, by the way. Um, they always oversell a house because a lot of times people just, you know, ah, it's too hot. I don't want to go to the taping or they get stuck in traffic. Right. But in the case of when we were trying to do the Richard Pryor variety show, uh, as, as Tom Hansen, who was the OIC, the outside in charge page, he said they must have dropped tickets from a helicopter all over Los Angeles <laughs> because it was a it was an overflow crowd wow. and people were waiting up to like eight hours before going in. And just before they were to go in, Richard decided that he wanted only black people in the first three rows. And it's not an uncommon request because in the case of like, even with Johnny Carson, we had what we call the DFs, the down fronts, and we would populate the front of the studio with people Johnny wanted to see young happy enthusiastic people so that when he was telling his jokes during the monologue because you can only see like one or two rows of of seats right the lights and are so and bright the lights are so bright you can't see the audience yeah. yeah so he wanted people that would respond to them to the jokes so Richard thought this would be his crowd he wanted these people to be able to sit in the audience and respond to his jokes well how are you going to do that when there's like 400 people ahead of you you know Right. So Paul Moody, who was Richard's really good friend, such a smart man, he went to the back of the line and he pulled people and brought them in kind of through the side door. So nobody saw how the seating was being done. And then the Richard wasn't feeling well and the taping got delayed and delayed and delayed. And they didn't start till about 11 o'clock at night. Really? Wow. And people were still hanging in to see Richard. But they were literally hanging off the walls, and it was a, it was a fire marshal nightmare in there. The pages were getting like double and triple overtime for working, and they didn't wrap till after two in the morning. And the next day, 
the pages who worked the show were called into the office of, I know you've heard her name before, Eva Hawkins. Oh, who, no, I don't know uh, that. Yeah. Well, remember, I'm East Coast. So is that? Yeah. But I, I know Herbie, Herbie J. Pilato mentioned her name on the oh, okay, podcast sure. too. She was in charge of the page staff, but it was Eva's office, the lawyers from NBC, the fire department, the police department, the reporters all wanted to know what happened. It was such a fiasco. And they didn't even tape an entire episode of the Richard Pryor show. It was one sketch and you can see it on YouTube. It was the Star Wars bar sketch wow. and it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. It's it's an amazing. Um, well, first of all, people don't realize how much goes into, you know, getting the audience, seating the audience. Um, so whatever happened, so the so once they finished it, that was the the the. Well, they got a different protocol going for when they would be taping more of Richard's shows, and even to the point that they just stopped having an audience at all oh, because wow. the production was so inconsistent, and it didn't last that long. Sadly, yeah. I, I don't think that Richard and the network could come to terms with each other on what each thought was funny. Right, right. Yeah, his, I mean, again, he needs to just do his thing, like for an HBO kind of thing, you know, do his, his stand up and, but. Well, this was before HBO. Yeah, no, long ago. I'm not that, I, I'm not, I'm actually not that young because, because we, we literally, like we were the first ones back, you know, to get HBO. It's like, there's a new thing coming out, HBO, and they had to like dig up the ground or run the cables, you know? Sure. So I, I do remember that. A uh, couple of things I just, you you just sort of sparked some um, some thoughts. It's funny you mentioned the whole thing about uh, bringing the audience members, like how do you cut the line of people that are in line? Now it was funny and I'm, I'm curious if there are any NBC current pages that know if it's doing, because when I, I was the SNL key page and we used to line up folks on the eighth floor and there were stanchions, you know, from like where the eight eight uh, H uh, door was, you know, down the hallway, and we would put all of the celebrities in this line. So here it is: you can have a line of, you know, the most famous celebrities there are. You know, they're all lined up, and then all of a sudden, some bigger celebrity shows up. You know, it's like bigger. You know, Steve Martin, you're important, but uh, you know, whatever. So Charlton Heston, you're more whatever it was. You know, so originally we would literally take the, the more famous person go to the front of the stanchion and be like could you all move back you know we, oh. we would have the whole and i was like really so one of the things that i did as the key and i was very i'm always coming up with crazy ideas but i wound up putting a you know a stanchion's um a sort of a a holding pen about five feet five or six feet long put a rope across it and then I put, you know, and then I put more stations behind it. So everyone lined up sort of not in this front area, which was empty, yeah. but at, you know, like a little bit further behind. So now when it's a, a big celebrity came in, I just walked them to the front and then just put them in this holding cell that was, you know, that had nobody in it. You know, I could fill it with five or six people. So anyone that was online, it was such a deep line. They didn't, they could even, you know, they weren't even paying attention. So but but I put that in there because it was kind of the same thing. Like, how do you tell everyone to move back? It was kind of weird. Well, so but I'm also we had, I, I don't know if you guys did. Did you do tape and hold where you would tape we off? Did. Yes. So yeah. we would we would keep the tape and hold until 10 minutes before air. Yeah. And then if, if this, the VIPs didn't show up for their their reserved taped seats, then yeah. we 
we would then allow the general public to sit there. Right. Yeah. And we, we, there's, there's somebody on the podcast. We, we had, and again, for the listeners, you know, these tape and holds again, if you're, if you know someone or your celebrity, the seats physically had masking tape on them with your name on it. And basically you would have, you know, special tickets and you'd come into the studio and they would literally, you know, tape or rip the, the, the tape off and seat you. And in one of our, uh, one SNL, um, it was getting really, really late, like, like, uh, five minutes to air and somebody makes the call to rip that tape because you got like five minutes to fill the, every seat with these standbys. And basically we filled them and then somebody important showed up probably at 1135, let's yeah. say, I mean, the show is airing. It probably, I mean, it was that close. It could, you know, yeah. and we had, we had to turn that person away and literally it went through the moon. You could actually probably Google a story. Um, but, uh, and I want to have this person on to talk about it because now it's 30 years later, but you know, I mean, give us a break. We're just, you know, pages where we're not, we were, you know, management page, we were doing our job, but you know, celebrities and folks, they'd show up whenever they feel like, and it's like, look, our job is to fill the audience get everyone ready seated before the show starts. But um, you were saying that you know. like even about, about a pages doing it out here now, sadly, the page program is quite different out here now than it is in New York because with um, NBC being acquired by Universal, the Universal tour operation took over whatever tour business would be going on out here. Mm. So the, audiences are also taken over by another company usually audiences unlimited or one iota mm. and they take care of ushering the shows so the pages on the on the west coast now they and it's a small staff but they're really the executive training program that this whole thing started out to be and they rotate between different divisions within nbc universal so you might be at uh, bravo for three months or press and publicity or usa and that's how you work your 18 months uh, trying to make your connections to stay at NBC. Yeah. Yeah. It's some folks had talked about that, that, that pretty much it's almost like a rotating, which is great. I mean, it, you go from, you know, division or, or, or um, different, different divisions or offices in, on the West, on the East coast and obviously on the West coast. Um, so, yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know. I th I think it just, yeah, they just go to one learning experience to the next, but I don't know. If, yeah, I guess. Well, I don't, I don't know if they give the, I, I guess they would. I don't really know, to be honest. So they still I, uh, What, what they, they do in addition to that, every once in a while, they might do a limo run if there's a press event and they need to accompany a celebrity, you know. Right. Yeah, we never did that on the, on the East Coast. I, I, a lot of folks had mentioned this limo run thing, but we never oh, did yeah. that. In New York, we never, I guess it was because of the subway or the car service. I don't know. They just drove them to the front door. But yeah, you guys got to go to these, pick up these stars and do hang out with them. I don't know. We didn't do that. Well, the Tonight Show sometimes would send a car for their guests. Um, Ed McMahon always arrived in a limo. Johnny always drove himself. Right. Uh, but whenever they would have the, the different uh, press affiliate events, um, we as pages were kind of the ambassadors and we would escort the celebrities around to the different affiliates and, you know, try to keep them sober, <laughs> trying to keep them, you know, happy and clappy for the, uh, the affiliates. 
but no, there are a couple instances where my, my friend Tommy Chasek had this particularly beautiful woman that he was escorting around and she had just done a TV movie and she liked to have a little adult beverage in her coffee. So when she was thirsty and one of the affiliates uh, said, can I get you anything? She says, well, I'd like coffee. And she was, no, no, no. Tommy will get me my coffee. He knows how I like it. <laughs> That's very funny. Um, so here, let's we'll, we'll continue moving down this list because it was such a long list. Um, how about, uh, well, Sid Caesar for the for the kids at home who may not know who uh, Sid Caesar is, but tell us a little bit about. Sid if Caesar. they don't know who Sid Caesar <laughs> is, they sh they sh they need to. Uh, well, get it's embarrassing. It's emba it's embarrassing. I'm sure that um, yeah, it's crazy. But, but yeah, tell no, us about your Sid. show of shows. You're, 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 yes. So, so legend a legend in comedy yes so i had what to me was the ultimate limo run i got to pick up imogene coca mm -hmm. from her hotel oh. and then went up to the truesdale estates a very high-end area here in los angeles and then we picked sid caesar up because the two of them had worked together on your show of shows and drove them to the pasadena civic auditorium for the 1977 primetime emmy awards oh, wow. and Emma Jean was just so delightful and she was telling me she was she was so happy she could fit into a dress that she used to wear in the 50s and she was so proud of it and and Sid sat there in his slightly tattered tuxedo and the two of them looked like they were like an old cake topper on a wedding cake they were so adorable together but she's yak 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 and he's like shut up already and I just had the best time listening to them so I get them backstage and I had to hide them because they were surprise presenters on the show mm -hmm. And they were doing just fine. And eventually they went out, thunderous applause, and they did the pre presentation. And just as Emma Jean was coming off the stage, her whole dress split open on the back. Mm -hmm. And Sid was so sweet. He took his tuxedo and he put it over her shoulders. And the two of them walked back to the limo together. Oh. And it just was such a darling <laughs> moment. And then another presenter who, uh, he was a recipient, uh, John Travolta uh, accepted an award for his girlfriend, the late actress Diana Hyland, for a film they were in called "The Boy in the Plastic Bubble." Yes, and it's I, another it's another clip you can see on YouTube. Classic but, classic show that was very famous back in the day. I oh, do remember yeah. watching that. That was huge. That's funny. but John was was sobbing. I mean, it, it, he he was ugly crying, and I didn't think John Travolta could ever look ugly, but he was ugly crying, and he came backstage and just put his hands in his, his hands and his head in his hands and was sobbing. And I quick ran over to the makeup table and grabbed a bunch of tissue and handed it to him. And he looked up at me and the tears were coming out of his eyes and he grabbed me around the waist and he was hugging me and shaking and shaking. And I looked at him and I said, you want to get out of here for a while? And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. And so I hid him in one of the dressing rooms because it was supposed to be my job to take him back to the press area so he could be photographed with the Emmy and 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 meet the gauntlet of reporters who would ask him questions. So once he composed himself, I, I led him down the hallway to to go to the press, and he like gave my hand a little squeeze, like thank you. So I had that moment, and then I look out, and up comes another limousine, and my friend Jeff Garrett runs to go help, and it's Alfred Hitchcock. Wow. It was another surprise presenter. That is insane. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> so Jeff looks over at me and I go help him because Alfred Hitchcock was very old and very overweight and very slow. And we were literally holding him 
as we're getting him backstage and it's dark and there's cables all over the place. And meanwhile, I'm going like, I'm with freaking Alfred Hitchcock here. I did my senior paper on him in college. Wow. So I wanted to talk to him, but I didn't want to be professional. So as I'm holding him, he looks over at me and he says, you're doing a very good job. <laughs> and I said, well, thank you, Mr. Hitchcock. I did my senior paper on you. Ask me anything about you and I'll tell you. Wow. So he kind of impishly smiled and we got him to his place backstage, ran off the stage real fast. The curtains open and everybody saw Alfred Hitchcock. Wow. You know, it's funny. I, I do. It is weird. And again, I don't know if celebrities become celebrities for what I'm about to say, but I've, you know, when, when dealing with some of the biggest stars, some of them are, are like, you know, Hey, like we'll ask you questions, you know, Hey, how long you, you've been working here or, or, or what do you think of, you know, the suit that, you know, but they're very personable. They're very friendly. And, you know, in doing those, those press tours or visiting different places, you know, again, I, I'm sure they must have a lot on their mind, but they do take a moment to sort of relate or, you know, interact with, with, with the regular folk, you know, and, and maybe that makes them more endearing. I, I don't know. Did well, find... maybe they just like a gal in a uniform, you know, what can I, <laughs> or, or that you... too. I know, I know your viewers can't see it, but I, can you see over in the corner there? That's my old page uniform. Oh, 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 wow. Oh, That's you, okay. It. Yeah, they well, they may not have to see it, but the the um, I'll describe it. You have a neck. What is that called? The well, it's it's called a pussy bow. A pussy bow. It's a piece okay. of fabric that's attached to a lady's blouse, and it can either be tied as a a bow tie or worn kind of as an ascot. So we had oh, wow. we had that variety to wear. But uh, no, I totally swiped both of my page uniforms when I left. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and and well and and what is the jacket it's a it's a navy navy blue or black navy blue jacket? with gold with gold buttons buttons okay at the time we wore little gray skirts uh eventually the women got to wear trousers oh. but i never got to that point of, of wearing the, the slacks with it and uh we, we had uh, french cuffs on the on the white blouse and i had different types of cufflinks that i would wear Wow. And uh, I don't know about you, but we were it was mandatory to wear closed toe shoes. Oh, yeah, we we had well, our our uniform. And again, the uniforms, if you talk to anybody, that's the big that's the talk of the town. The, the uniforms they either hated them or loved them. Yours actually looks quite lovely, <laughs> actually. Is, well, it, is polyester. it No, oh, it is polyester. polyester. Now, Courtney Conti, who uh, went on to become a huge executive in the television industry, he, right from the beginning he said no i'll get a blue blazer that's cashmere and i'll get wool pants and i'll also the the nbc logo on the pocket but no i'm allergic to polyester i can't wear this stuff wow. and eventually he made a deal with academy award clothiers to get a nicer uniform for the pages to wear oh wow because i know on the east coast which i guess they're the same i know that when we were there we had tan pants you know the polyester blue jacket um the women had a tan skirt and then i think later they did wind up um uh switching to a gray outfit and something that was that was you know a designer and and probably wool i would imagine that if they switched they probably got rid of the polyester well every week they would uh the dry cleaner would come and get the blazer and the skirt mm. but i would take the blouse home every night and wash it in the sink and you know drip dry it so it would be fresh every day yeah yeah, I it was, and again, there were some pages that 
you know, they didn't care and it was just a disaster. But I try, I tried. I mean, we, we had, we had penny loafer shoes, um, which were close, you know, cl obviously the clothes for us. And the, and the women did have high heels, which obviously had to be closed as well. Um, but I, you know, I tried to look, you know, we were representing people don't realize that. I mean, you know, some out of town, you know, they, they come and see a page that's NBC to them. They don't know, you know, they just see someone in a uniform and they, you know, if you don't really represent the brand, you know, properly, they go home and say, yeah, we went to NBC and, and they were mean, you know, or, the, or it was a terrible experience. And, you know, the first line of defense is the pages, you know, so it, it is important to uh, show, you know, show, show our true colors. <laughs> well, also on the flip side of that, sometimes the audiences would be very kind to us and, and go across the street and, and get margaritas for us. Really? <laughs> if Because it, it was particularly hot sometimes right. waiting out there. Oh, there's this one guy that um, my, my my page friend Tim Danker and I were very insistent um, that we learn CPR because it was something that was oh. just starting to become mainstream. And the day that we finished the class, somebody passed out online for The Tonight Show. Oh. And... I ran out there and I, I, I tore my blazer off so I could wrap it up so that I could give him something to rest his head on. It was all in slow motion and, you know, look, listen and feel. And I'm saying everything in my head as I'm running over towards him and he didn't stop breathing, but I helped and kept the crowds away and comforted him. And his wife looks over at me and she says, our son's a paramedic. You're doing a very good job. Well, we, <laughs> we, we got it all taken care of. He, they, they took him, uh, by ambulance to the hospital, which was just two blocks away, St. Joseph's. And unfortunately, they couldn't see the Tonight Show, but I said, call me and I'll make sure you get VIP tickets mm. so that you can come see the Tonight Show. Well, like a month later, I get this ginormous box sent to me at NBC and I don't know what the heck it is. And I opened it up and it was from the gentleman that I helped who was wow. a big shot with the 3M tape company. Mm -hmm. And in this box was every imaginable tape wow. a person could use. There was new beta tape and VHS tape, but there was Christmas tape and packing tape and things to put spit curls on your hair, <laughs> like every tape in the world. So, wow. so the crowds could be very, very nice to right. us also. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. The, the And again, I, I loved, for some reason, I don't know what it is, but I really got a kick out of talking to everyone and, and you know, only because they're excited and they want to know more about what's going on. So then, I, and then I get excited, you know, cause you're, you're giving them information that they'll, they would never really hear otherwise. And they really did get excited. So it was kind of cool. Well, um, we'd also give them information that wasn't always accurate too. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> there was a midway area between the administration building and where the, the, the studios were. And usually that area is where we'd have the tours wait when Johnny would pull up so they could see Johnny and, and he was always very kind to the tourists. He'd go, you know, the tour is a ripoff, get your money back, you know, and then everybody would laugh. But in that same little midway area, there was a, a mountain behind it. Uh, and the tourist would, we would tell the tourists, oh, that's Walton's Mountain. Or uh, that's where Julie Andrews twirled at the beginning of Sound of Music. And right. people didn't care. They were, oh, right. Uh, you know. <laughs> I was gonna, yeah, I guess now that I think about it, um, uh, I know that there were pages that that did, yeah, they made some things up. <laughs> Which... Well, but also I didn't get a page manual when I first started, so I really was just kind of listening 
to what the other pages were saying on their tours to get the information. Oh, wow. And eventually a, a person named Guy Crisetti put together the page manual. He was um, Dean Martin's nephew, I think. Oh. And uh, so we we had something to work from. But I mean, I, there was a, one other girl uh, uh, had overheard one of the pages once say, um, uh, this is Studio 5. We can't go into it right now because it's filled with water because they're filming Sea Hunt. Now, see how they've been on air for 20 years. That's funny. Wow. But people are, oh, okay, okay, you know. Yeah, they don't know. It's really funny. Um, so I, um, well, so it, it, it's interesting because again, um, I just, I still find it fascinating. Uh, anyway, we're going to continue down this list. So you had, uh, which the gong show. So, uh, and Chuck Barris um, was, what, what was the story with him? Uh, well, in 1972 and 1973, while I was still a student at Agora High School, I was a contestant on the dating game. Oh, wow. And the first trip I won to San Diego, which is about a two-hour drive from here, and the second trip was to the Bahamas. Wow. And when I won the guy for my date, and they said, you're going to the Bahamas, and I whispered in his ear, where are the Bahamas? <laughs> I, I no idea. So I had established a bit of a friendship with some of the people at the Chuck Barris organization so that when I was, I got my job at NBC a week after they started the gong show. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like old home week for me. And Chuck was as, as crazy and silly as people think he was. He had a heart of gold. And he was like a he was like a big brother to me. And he was so sweet and so kind to and generous to so many people. Um, I would do game show run-throughs for them when they were trying to develop new shows. Wow. Uh, whenever they were, we were doing the treasure hunt, we did it on the a back lot at what was the Burbank Studios, now Warner Brothers. And Chuck would have like big, you know, foot long, you know, like 20-foot-long sandwiches and a and a band playing. And that was just like for lunchtime, just to have a just so everybody right. had a party atmosphere. Wow. And one day, one of the pages came up to me and, and grabbed me off the tour. And she says, I'm taking over your tour. Chuck Barris needs to see you. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, what's wrong? And I run over there and Chuck's backstage. And he's kind of going, tee hee, tee hee, tee hee. He says, stand right here. And when this curtain opens, walk out with these other women. And you'll know what to do. And then all of a sudden, live, here we are, the gong show. And I walk out. And Chuck does an intro, something to the effect of, these are the ladies at NBC. Ladies, introduce yourselves. And then we all just start shaking hands with each other. And that was the little <laughs> bit. And, yeah. uh, and that was my 15 seconds of fame on the gong show. But I, I adored Chuck. And I, I, uh, I'm, I'm very sorry that he isn't recognized for all of his achievements. He's the only producer to have television programs at the time on all three networks and in syndication wow. at the same time That's and um, wrote the song Palisades Park and is a former NBC page. Oh, see, now I didn't know that either. Wow. But Ch Chuck was a page, uh, Peter Marshall, yeah. Gene Rayburn, Hugh Downs, of uh, course, Aubrey Plaza, uh, Richard Benjamin. Uh, there's a lot of us out there. Yeah. Uh, Gene Rayburn. Um, I carried his pants. I went up with him in the elevator. <laughs> I, I took him from the secret underground lair uh -huh. uh, of 30 Rock. If you go underneath 30 Rock, there's there's tunnels in all directions. The talent would go in a, in the limo under the parking garage on 50th on the 50th Street side. 
and there's elevators that go underground. So I got him and he was, you know, he had his pants. I guess he didn't want to crease them. So I'm literally, yeah. I'm, you know, walking up, holding his pants, bringing him to, to the show. Um, and again, it's those types of things where, you know, I watched him all the time. Uh, you know, it's insane to, it's just so it's, it may be silly, but it was, it was pretty cool, you know, having a chat with him talking about, you know, just, you know, well, years later, they... years later, a friend of mine managed Gene Rayburn, um, the late, the late agent, Fred Wasbrock. And, um, I was having a dinner party at my house and Fred said, can I bring somebody with me? And I was sure he goes, yeah, I'm going to bring Gene. And I thought, Ooh, Fred's got a girlfriend. And I opened the door and uh, there's Match Game's own Gene Rayburn coming to wow. my house for dinner. Wow. Isn't that crazy? It, it's, it really is amazing. It, it's, I don't even know what to say. It's insane. Well, it, you were talking about the underground um, yeah. places at 30 yeah. Rock. In my book, My Peacock Tale Secrets of an NBC Page, I have photos of what became Johnny Carson's uh, office space and dressing room, which were downstairs below stage one, studio one. And there was also a secret tunnel. And I've got pictures of that in my book because when Johnny said his last goodbye on the tonight show, rather than going out front to see everybody, what he did is he met his wife downstairs in his office and they went through the secret tunnel out to the administration building out to a helipad mm. where they took off and they went to their Malibu home. And then everybody else who was invited went to a party at Johnny's house. Oh, wow. wow. And it was less, less Brown and the band of renown played. And, uh, that, but originally that little, that little secret room was just, um, our page lounge. So oh, wow. what Johnny had been known at one time to have a big picture window that overlooked 3000 West Alameda Avenue. And that was the subject of debate when Red Fox wanted to get a big window in his office too. But as things started getting more and more dangerous around NBC, it was they thought Johnny was too vulnerable having a big glass window in his office. So mm. that's when they moved him downstairs. Hmm. And it's funny that the Today Show, uh, which originally the well, the Today Show window, uh, the original, and again, talk about facts. You know, we were told that the that the Floorsheim shoe uh, retail store was the original window on the world of the Today Show. And it probably was just a regular piece of glass, you know, when they first did it, you know, when it first launched, whatever year that was, I should know that. Um, but then when they moved to, you know, the plaza, you know, it's basically bulletproof glass. So I think you could probably drive a car into it and nothing would happen. Um, well, so we it didn't, is shocking, even, have, you know, we didn't yeah. even have metal detectors when, right. when yeah, I was yeah. the audiences. And when we were working the tonight show the pages were told not to look at johnny doing the monologue our backs were to him so that we could look out into the audience and see if anybody had a weapon or mm. looked like they were going to rush the stage or something that was the mm. most security he had there and you know there are a couple plainclothes cops around and stuff but right. we were the ones who would have been the first line of defense at that point right Wow. And, um, and going back to the gong show so the gong show was was that shot on the then the Burbank oh Academy. absolutely uh, so much it was so popular when it first began that we were um taking the audience they only usually on a game show they shoot five shows a day and they would do like three shows break for lunch two more but we were rotating audiences in for every show it was so popular 
Wow. It was a great, yeah. I mean, that was one of the classics, <laughs> you know, it was a great show. So well, and, you know, Chuck wasn't the original host of the, of the gong show. Oh, really? Who was that? There was a guy named John Barber who was on real people. I was, I was going to say I, him. I know so, yeah, yeah, John real Barber. People, yes. he did the daytime version. And then really? Gary Owens, who was oh. known on laughing with putting his hand. Gary Owens. Back. Yes. This Gary is Owens. a great voice. Yes. Yeah. He did the syndicated version of the show, but, Chuck always had this vision of what the show should be. It was supposed to be a spoof of talent shows. And they purposefully would seek out some of these freaky deaky acts. In fact, um, there was a show that Chuck also did was called the $1.98 Beauty Contest. And I was working in compliance and practices then, which was, you know, making sure, you know, the language was okay and that people's bodies weren't being exposed. And and Chuck purposefully went to the body shop, which is a strip club in town, and he would get the girls there and give them some stupid little shtick to do, some little act. And that way he kept the the silliness, right. sexy quotient up on those wow. shows. Wow. That's and that then every once it. in a while he wanted a real act there. Like a real, a real yeah, someone that had some talent. Right. Like Mayor Winningham, she came out of the uh, out of the gong show. Mm. It's um yeah, the show really was 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 the show before america's got talent you know any of these shows they were american idol i mean in a way you know you would right the fun part of watching the show is you would have these really bad uh acts and then they would gong them you know just the whole and his his shtick um and then of course you'd have some that were actually very good so it was you know it was a, it was a fun show well and if you were a member of a sag or aftra then even if your act was horrible you still came away with uh, a check because you got paid right. your minimum for being on the show. Right, right, right. No, absolutely. Yeah, that was, um, uh, yeah, and anyone, and we talked about that with some past pages that even if they spoke, you know, if like Letterman would speak to them, they would get a check. So, uh, you know, and then I, I remember one page said, you know, they weren't supposed to talk, but they they sort of made, made sure they said a couple of lines just to get some uh, cash on the back end. That's like when we did Stump the Band, we were told not to talk to Johnny, not because we would be rude or insult him or anything, but because they, they would have to pay us. Right. But uh, we, where the pages would stand off on the side when any of us would get a chance to do stump the band and they would, you know, fingers, you know, with little finger singles, you move to the right, stand up a little higher, oh. move to the left. Because back then you, you called your family and friends and said, I'm going to be on the tonight show right. tonight. There was no videotape. It was one and done. Right. Right. Wow. Did you get a chance to do the um, stump the band? You, you worked, did you, oh yeah did i did stump the band and um i mentioned courtney conti a little bit earlier he did stump the band and uh, just to re what it was somebody would sing a silly song in the audience and johnny would give them an envelope and it would have you know dinner for two someplace or disneyland tickets uh but courtney kind of riffled through the the envelopes a little bit and johnny had been playing stump the band with a particularly well-endowed woman and her friend and um, Courtney pulled the envelope and gave it to Johnny. And it was um, a ride on the Goodyear blimp. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Courtney gave Johnny a no. good joke. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. I mean, again, it's, it, it is funny because now with the iPhones and technology, you know, the, everything's instant, you know, but back then, if you, if the Tonight Show, first of all, everyone tuned into the Tonight Show. There wasn't, you had three networks. That's what people watched. Um, and if you were going to appear on it, and I guess at that point you didn't have VCRs, so it's true. You'd call people, you'd want to be on camera, 
it was quite exciting. I mean, it really was a thrill. Um, nowadays, you know, everybody's with social media and this and that. I mean, everybody sort of thinks they're famous. I don't know. But there was something magical about appearing on TV back then um, because it was virtually impossible. There was really no way to get on TV except for being, you know, in a, in a situation like that. Um, so we're going to we're going to go through this list. Um, we have well, speaking of Johnny, Joan Rivers, uh, which which again, she's, you know, there's that big with her in the Tonight Show and everything else. I know her and Johnny didn't um, Johnny, eventually that a falling John, out. But... Johnny loved Joan. Let's start with that basic premise. And by the time this whole incident happened, Johnny owned the Tonight Show. And Joan Rivers was his employee. He uh, he he helped cultivate her right. as an act. And yeah. up until Joan was guest hosting, the only women who were guest hosts were Helen Reddy, Beverly Sills, Florence Henderson, all women singers. They weren't comics. So when this mysterious memo was leaked... Uh, a memo that Peter LaSalle, who was an executive producer at The Tonight Show, uh, swears he never saw, never authorized, because it would have had to go through him if there was, if it was a real memo. But um, a woman by the name of Dorothy, who was Joan's manager and good friend, she saw the letter, and it was a list of names of 10 men who could possibly replace Johnny Carson when he was to retire. Now, Johnny had never announced anything about retiring. It was this letter was 10 years before he even announced. Mm. So Dorothy saw in handwriting, it said, you have no home here. To, so, Joan, to Joan, so it was a letter written to Joan Rivers specifically. It was a letter. It was a memo that had been written in the handwriting of Jay Michaels, who was in, tar in charge of guest relations for NBC. He wrote, you have no home here, gave the letter to Joan's husband, Edgar. It could have been a practical joke gone horribly wrong. Because rather than Joan or Edgar calling Johnny directly saying, what's this list here? And, and like Leno's name wasn't on it. Letterman's name wasn't on it. The only one Dorothy remembers was David Brenner's name was on it. But it was a bunch of other comics that were not pulling any kind of ratings like Joan could pull. It was a ridiculous memo, but Edgar and Joan said, that's it. We're going to look for a job elsewhere. Hmm. And you can't keep a secret in this town. Right. And Peter LaSalle begged Joan not to do this. She wanted him to come with her. And he was like, no, Joan, don't do this. And, and she said, you know, it's my time now. I'm, I'm pulling bigger numbers than Johnny when I host on Monday. I got to do it now. If not now, when? And Dorothy was there in the room when Joan called Johnny to tell him what she had done. And he did hang up the phone on her and they never talked again. That was when she got when she told him she was going to Fox. Yeah. She didn't even get the chance to say it. Johnny. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. And she went to Fox for seven months. That's when the infamous booking wars started. Right. That if you were going to do the Tonight Show. You couldn't do Joan. And if you did Joan, you couldn't do the Tonight Show. And it got really ugly and sad. And there was no reason why it should have. It was mm. just out of control. Yeah. 
Well, and, and, and obviously with Leno and Letterman, uh, the same type of stuff came out. I mean, it was just the, the whole, uh, it's really unfortunate because even Letterman obviously brought, you know, we used to watch Letterman and Leno when, you know, when Leno showed up as a guest, my brother and I, we would, we would be, Oh, you know, Leno's going to be on Letterman or, and we watched all the Letterman's as well. And it's a weird thing because Letterman and Seinfeld who appeared on Johnny Carson that, you know, if you were on Johnny Carson and, you know, if Johnny looked at you and invited you over to the couch and spoke to you for a bit, that made your career. So, so Letterman, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. Letterman and, and Leno also went on the tonight show. Really. They got their start on Carson. Then let, then Letterman got his show and, you know, Leno went on Letterman, you know, like the it's moving. And then unfortunately let Leno did a very good job and got popular. And then Leno and Letterman, you know, got into it and the whole thing just yeah, went. It's even more devious than that because the, the promises were made to both Johnny and to Dave yeah. about how things would play out if and when Johnny was ever to retire. And they were the promises were not kept. Yeah. And I don't fault Jay Leno for seeing an opportunity and and he worked it, man. He went around and met all the affiliates and, and kissed babies and shake, was shaking hands. Yeah. I've been around Jay a lot. He's a very personable man. He's very nice. He gets the job done. Um, it's just out of loyalty to Johnny and a promise made to both Johnny and Dave. It didn't happen. Yeah, it was real. Yeah, and and I agree, Leno. I met him many, you know, many times. He's he's like the nicest guy. I mean, he he's like so nice. It's almost unrealistic. I mean, he's just like like the regular the most regular guy there could be yeah um and it's unfortunate because you know the 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 executives um you know they they really are looking at either the bottom line or the numbers or this or that but they they're sort of missing the bigger picture um which is you know unfortunately caused which really all of this is was really caused really by them uh and then the whole thing of switching Leno to 10 o'clock and I mean, they oh came up God. with these harebrained, and even Conan and the Conan Lennon. Yeah, stuff. they came yeah. up with so many harebrained ideas. It's like, what are you doing? You know. But you know what? Here's the sad thing: is you could walk down Hollywood Boulevard right now and say, "Who's Johnny Carson? Who's Jay Leno? They know Jimmy Fallon. That's yeah. the host of the Tonight Show." Right. Which is which? Which also is insane to me. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah um yeah it's very it is well it's funny because it's true johnny car i mean again when when we grew up and you know johnny was legend you know legend and um you know when i speak to some younger folks they write they don't know who johnny carson is and they don't even know it's just a whole different world and again i feel like maybe i'm just you know like like i'm like get off my lawn (laughs) like an old man you know but i don't know if just it's you know but my John, time Johnny, has come and they John, were you know Johnny showed everybody how to get it done yeah and he started in October October 1st 1962 he he was broadcasting when John Kennedy was shot Bobby yeah. was shot Martin Luther King was shot Vietnam War yeah Nixon yet he showed up sometimes 90 minutes a night until it got cut down to 60 minutes a night and he was letting everybody go to bed that evening, knowing that everything was going to be okay. 
and he entertained and and kept morale afloat in the United States. Right. I agree. We I, I hate to say it, we we really need that today, to be honest with you, because it's true. You all tuned in and and it's and even when you know during 9-11 in, in New York, uh, I remember Letterman, I think his first day back, but yeah, everything that you know hit I'm certain that David Letterman, you know, looked to Johnny and um, you know, modeled his you know, come back or the bringing back the show well, and what but, to say. But Johnny, Johnny wrote for, yeah. for oh, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said Johnny would submit jokes. Yeah, he would send him jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty funny. That and again for for those listening, um, yeah, Johnny apparently would would sit and watch Letterman and he'd have jokes and he'd give them to to Letterman to to say on the air. So Johnny was sort of vicariously speaking through Letterman, which is awesome. Um, okay, we're gonna move along to. Um, to Fred, the list is so long. We're just gonna uh, we're gonna hit uh, Freddie. Well, Prince. maybe we maybe this Freddie could Prince. be maybe this could be a to be continued two parter, yeah. a very special episode. Oh, really? <laughs> we'll get through. We we don't have that many. Um, we're getting through it well. Uh, Freddie Prince, which which again, um, his son, which is it was it's Freddie Prince Junior. Is it a Junior? The, yeah. Right. Right. Um, so I remember, of course, Freddie Prince from um, it was uh, Sanford and Son. Was it Chico Sanford and the Man? Chico and the Man. Chico and the Man. Excuse me. Wow. Excuse me. Um, so I remember him, and unfortunately, I do know what happened with him. It, it took a turn for the worse. But tell us about your experience with uh, with him. Well, again, this is this is your homework tonight. Uh, go on YouTube, look for Freddie Prince's first appearance on the Tonight Show. Mm. Now, Jim McCauley was the talent coordinator who would book the comics for the show. And Jim was the kind of guy who he knew what nightclub funny was, and then he knew what TV funny was. And he wasn't always the most popular guy because he wouldn't get a lot of people on the on the Tonight Show. So he watched Freddie help him, you know, put his act together. Freddie showed up to do the Tonight Show and he's wearing, you know, kind of slovenly clothes and, you know, hair's a little bit long, has a mustache. He was Puerto Rican. And Fred de Cordova looked at him and said, Johnny's going to hate this guy. Forget it. He's not going on. No, forget it. And Peter LaSalle and Jim said, no, Fred, go sit down. He's going on tonight. And with that appearance, at the age of 19, he became a superstar overnight. And James Comack, who was a, an executive producer, Courtship of Eddie's father, was in development doing a show about a curmudgeonly old guy who had this young Mexican, Puerto Rican guy in the neighborhood and he helped mentor him. And he calls he called Peter LaSalle and said, I found my Chico. Hmm. And that's how he became the star of Chico and the Man with virtually no previous acting experience. And Freddie was somebody who was troubled before he became famous. Um, he had a history of suicide when he was younger. He threatened to kill himself many times. Um, Jimmy J.J. Walker, uh, you know, Dynamite, he had told me that he would get calls from Freddie in the middle of the night saying, hey, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to do it. And he would jump in his car and head over to Freddie's place on Hollywood Boulevard. And he'd run upstairs and there'd be like a room full of people there. And Freddie would say, I just wanted to see if you would come. <laughs> so he had drug 
problems. He was over-prescribed quaaludes back in the day. They had quaaludes. And when his death was ruled a suicide, his family was able to sue the doctors and um, psychiatrists that he was dealing with because he had been over-prescribed. And had he been in his right mind, mm. he wouldn't have shot himself. So um, it's one of the few instances when an insurance company had to pay off for a suicide. Really interesting. Wow, that was and again, it was so sad. I mean, when I was, I forget what year I was, how old I was, but I do remember that. And it was, it's one of those things where you, you know, you kind of, it's like, wow, I, I didn't. It, it just yeah. Kind there's of more. There's mind, more you know? to the story. There's more to the story in the book about two of the pages who had befriended Freddie, and they both had decidedly different takes on on who he was and his personality, but um, beloved uh, is is the word that would, would be in my mind um, and, and tragic. Yeah, so tragic. Um, speaking of another unique personality, Mr. Andy Kaufman um, was definitely a unique individual. <laughs> Andy was doing uh, Van Dyke and Company on stage four um, and his manager George Shapiro who later went on to manage Jerry Seinfeld um, we we all befriended each other and would have lunch in the commissary together and uh, he would call Andy would call me at home sometimes because I was still living with my folks going to college when I was a page and my mother hearing a Jewish surname got all excited and he says Shally Andy calls on the phone <laughs> and then I showed her his act on Saturday Night Live and she backed off <laughs> uh, but Andy uh, asked me to work with him on something. And again, detailed very much in the book. And um, I didn't think it was funny. I didn't understand it. It was one o'clock in the morning at the improv. I wasn't getting paid. I, I had to go to school. I had to work. I could, I just said, Andy, I, you know, good luck with this. And it was kind of the precursor to his wrestling shtick that he used to do right wow. and also i the only time i've been to 30 rock is i went to see andy uh when he got voted off saturday night live yeah and i went to see dick eversall and andy and uh dick's assistant uh when i called her uh said now's not a good time because <laughs> uh, <laughs> they had to kind of throw everything out that they were thinking of because andy was overwhelmingly voted off ever appearing on Saturday Night Live again. Of, and of course he did appear again. And it's funny because he was on with uh, Letterman with Lawler, is it Lawler, the the wrestler? Jerry Lawler, Jerry yeah. Lawler, yeah, that they were on together. And I I think Letterman, you know, at the time it, it certainly looked like Letterman didn't know about it, but I think he spoke about it saying that he was aware where Lawler, you know, slapped him, you know, knocked him off his chair through the through uh, Letterman's water in Lawler's face, and like Letterman looked like he was terrified, uh, but I think Letterman did admit later. Letterman that Letterman knew, knew and it. also there was an instance on the Fridays show, which Fridays was like a poor man's version of Saturday Night Live, um, a, a sketch variety show that Larry David came from, Michael Richards, uh, and there was a bit where it looks like uh, Andy gets mad. It's a, a scene with Melanie Chartoff is in it. And Jack Burns comes in the scene and they get into a, a little bit of a, a scuffle and, oh, go, go to commercial, go to commercial. And 
my friend John Rourke was working on the show as an actor and he went in to try to help Jack. But everybody in the sketch knew that Andy was going to break and do something weird. But John was really upset because, you know, he could have gotten slugged and he could have gotten hurt real bad trying to protect right. his producer. Mm. But no, everybody always knew what Andy was going to do. And Andy mm. had it in his mind exactly how it would play out. Yeah, he played, he played everything. He played oh, everything. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. One of the things that he said to me was, um, my my manager wants me to do this sitcom and I, I don't want to do it, but he says it'll be good money and then I can do anything I want to do. So, you know, don't even bother watching it. And and that was Taxi. And then many years later, I married one of the guys on Taxi, uh, oh, the yeah. actor Randall Carver, who played hmm. John Burns on the first season of Taxi. Wow. Now, is that is that your current husband or is it or no, you know, only husband? Okay. Oh, oh, so you're still married. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Oh, congratulations. What? So the guy that I heard in the background, that's him. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that is so cool. Uh, and Taxi, of course, is another legendary uh, television series. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, let's go. We'll move on to the Bee Gees. I know we we only we have a little bit of time left, so we'll we'll just do a couple more. Uh, yeah. Tell us about the Bee Gees, Erica Estrada. Um, Bee Gees, just quickly, we had them on Midnight Special and could not get an audience in there to save our lives. Mm. And we were pulling them from the restaurants across the street, telling people to come see the Bee Gees. And, and literally a year later, you know, they were the biggest right. thing going. Right, um, right. Midnight Special gave us an opportunity to see a lot of rock stars and comics perform. And, and the way they did Midnight Special, it wasn't a show... Uh, that was done beginning, middle, and end, you'd have uh, somebody that would come on the show, like a Jim Croce, who I saw, uh, where he would do two or three songs, and then it would be edited into different versions of the show. I, I actually, the way I knew about getting a job at NBC is in high school, I went to see Midnight Special, and it was Jim Croce, Gladys Knight and the Pips, and B.B. King. Wow. And I saw these people standing around wearing these ugly polyester uniforms, uh, listening to rock and roll and getting paid for it. I thought, well, you know, gosh, I could do that. <laughs> that's how I even knew what a page was. And I, I didn't wow. realize how difficult it would be to become a page. And uh, eventually I started working with some of those people that I had seen there that day. Wow. And actually you mentioned becoming um, the difficulty of becoming a page. I, I don't know what the process, well, I heard the process was very, is very difficult these days. Back then, what was what were you? We were told that it was it was harder to be a page than to like get into Harvard or whatever. Yeah, what, that's what their, was that? That's, that's their story. Is that um, the lore? What 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 folklore do you have? I don't know. <laughs> well, I got lucky because I came in. There had been a strike, and it had just been resolved, and they needed a bunch of people fast because they wanted to keep the tour business up, and they needed a bunch of pages for that. Um, I had been working at Sears in the junior bazaar department wow. and it's an extremely long story but after my friend and i saw elvis we talked about <laughs> what we wanted to do in our future and she said her mother's best friend worked at nbc and her name was jean messerschmidt and jean came to sears to meet me and then recommended me to eva hawkins and that's how i got the job wow and then did you have one interview and and that was one and done yeah right, yeah so now I think you have to, you know, you have to give like a kidney and it's a, it's a very long process for what, what you I have to do a video about. interview. 
And and the nice thing too is just so people don't think that they don't have a chance at this. Uh, when I spoke to Christina Noval, who's the head of the department, she said what they do is if they're interested in somebody, they will fly them out and bring them either to New York or L.A., all expense paid, so oh, they can have an in-person interview. Wow. So I think that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, and, 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 and of course, anyone that's listening who's thinking of being a page um, – highly obviously we, we you know we we all love the program so much we highly recommend it and go online fill out an application yeah, yeah you, you, you they can't you, say no to you unless you fill out an application right. you never know where, where that can go so i think i know you're running low on time so but let's talk about eric estrada and then if there's any other quick things you want to mention before i'll, I'll yeah let, I'll let's hear about eric eric is my favorite you know one of my favorites <laughs> like with this henry this will be a funny a funny one to go off on too because um I picked him up in a limousine at a little apartment in the Valley and we drove to the Sheraton Universal Hotel where he was going to meet the affiliates and talk up this new show Chips that he was on. Well, I'm, I was wearing pigtails braided at the time, very Mary Hartman, very Hartman looking. And um, a picture of Eric and me actually winds up in a magazine saying that I'm one of his favorite dates because the press was all there taking pictures. So we get Eric back into the green room. Oh, there's my phone telling me something. We get back to the green room and uh, that's kind of the holding area before he was going to meet the affiliates. And the NBC people say to him, you can't wear your street clothes. You need to wear your chips uniform. And he says, no, 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 I'm, I'm dressed nice. I want to meet the, would you expect William Shatner to wear his Star Trek uniform when he meets the press? And NBC said, yes. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> so Larry Wilcox comes in and he's all dressed up in his chips uniform. So really Eric begrudgingly put on the chips uniform and that's the way they, they greeted the press and kind of like that famous shot of Donald Trump going down the escalator. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Eric went down that escalator and the people were screaming and it was like, Oh, okay. This guy's going to be a star. He, wow. had, he had it. They, they yeah. were looking. Yeah. They loved him. Oh yeah, he was great. And again, highly Chips was was another classic TV show. We we loved. I think he's doing a um. What is he doing? A a home renovation show now. I think he just signed some new renovation show, like Heavenly Renovation. I think it's called or something. I don't know. And um, he still got it. Yeah, he's awesome. I love him. Uh, okay, well, good. We're gonna we're gonna wrap it up. And um, is there anything else you wanted to mention before we before we wrap it up? I, I think the book the book's called My Peacock Tale. Um, Secrets of it? an NBC page. Any page, I think you pick it up on Am, you know, Amazon or any other uh, bookstores. They can, or I'll come to your home and read it to you. Read it, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I highly recommend it. And you know, again, everyone should check it out. You obviously mentioned, alluded to a lot of uh, you know, photos and some things in the book that people can check out, which uh, which is pretty exciting. What I'd like uh, to say is, even though it's just little of me talking about my stories and a few of my friends' stories are interjected. I really think it's a book for people, even if they don't want to be in the show business necessarily, but it kind of shows you how to, what I say is use your Lucy Ricardo thinking cap. Mm. Find find a way that when you go to meet somebody, whether it's a client or you're interviewing for a job, make them want to see you, not have to see you. Right. And um, always write a thank you note when you're done. Mm -hmm. right and nobody does that these days handwritten thank you, you know. notes right it, it's amazing it's it's funny because it, 
if I meet with folks and this and that, you know, once in a while, I'll get a thank you from someone who it's not written, but it's an email. And it's, a, and, it, and believe it or not, it does stand out because like, they're the only ones that do it, you know, so you do get, the, and then, and you do wind up, you know, building relationship with those folks. And David, you've got to get us a 90th reunion here happening. Yes. If anyone's listening uh, regarding the 90th uh, reunion, reach out to me. I'm actually, I'm happy to help do whatever I can do. So maybe I'll, I'll uh, get on that. So, uh, okay. Well, Shelly Herman, God bless you for, uh, for finally making time. I know we, we've been trying to schedule this for a while, so I really appreciate it. Uh, I highly recommend everyone to check out her book and uh, want to thank you very much. So everybody, Shelly Herman, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for listening to A Page in History. A Page in History is produced by David Harris Katz Entertainment. For more information on our television shows, syndication, and more, go to dhkatz.com. And to listen to more episodes of A Page in History, or if you've been lucky enough to call yourself one of the world-famous NBC pages and would like to appear on the show, go to apageinhistory.tv.